gospel according to the good Dr. Luke. We have come to the end of our time together in chapter 11. We have a long way to go before we get to the end of this wonderful, wonderful book. Today it's chapter 11, 37 to 54. A little longer passage today we're going to read. There's a lot in here. We cannot do justice to it today. We cannot unpack it fully to be sure. So the goal is always what? To drive you out of here, to go on your own, and to continue driving the roots deeper into the soil of the sanctified life. Be Berean-like. Study the scriptures. Make sure what I'm saying is biblical. Spend some more time in the Word. But what we're going to do is we're going to unpack this, and we're going to do it based on what we've been learning from Jesus in chapter 11. Remember last week, the problem that Jesus was identifying with the Pharisees and the religious leaders? It wasn't a lack of light. Light had come into the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the... It wasn't a lack of light. It was a lack of sight. They refused to acknowledge Jesus for who he really was. So, and we talked about moralism. We talked about the real challenge with, with being super religious. And what did, what did we say about that? When we talked about the prodigal son, remember we talked about the prodigal son? What did we say? Both sons were lost, right? But which one was it hard to identify in being lost? The elder, elder brother. Why? He, he looked like he was doing everything right. Not until you got to the end of the story did Jesus show us he was lost. He had been working for himself. He wasn't working to please the Father. The Father in the parable is representative of God, of course. And the beautiful part of that is God comes out and invites the elder brother in. But that's the problem with, with, being, with religiosity. And that's what happened to these religious leaders. It was all about religion. They had missed the most important aspect of our walk is, is a right relationship with Jesus. It's not religion. It's a personal, intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the key in understanding what this is all about. Okay, are you ready? Pharisees, the witness of woe. Luke eleven thirty seven to 54. Hear now the word of God. <clears throat> when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, so he went in and reclined at table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. And the Lord said to him, Now then, You Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint and rue and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you. Because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. 
Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that have been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for all of it. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge you yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus left there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. And may God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant and fallible word. Let's pray. Father, it's no accident we're here this morning. Everyone by divine appointment in their assigned seats. Speak now through this broken vessel and speak only your words from this pulpit. Father, we, we cry out with one heartbeat, all of us who are here, who are yours, make it a word of salvation. Everyone within the sound of my voice, raise them from death to life by giving the gift of repentance and faith. Do this, we ask. For those in storm winds, and there are many here in unimaginable storm winds that are blowing right now, make it a word of comfort and peace. And for those who are tired and weary and heavy laden, a word of rest, all things to all people, that some might be saved. Father, give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than the Lord Jesus Christ. Come. Now, fount of every blessing. Unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus in him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. The Pharisees, the witness of woe. Three headings, very simply. And then we will go outside together and have our meal. Are you ready? Number one, their concern. We want to talk about their concern. And let me pause for just a moment. We have a tendency of only remembering the Pharisees as they were when they kind of finished. When the temple in 70 A.D. was destroyed and the Pharisees and all of that kind of went away through uh, the second temple destruction, we have a tendency to see them the way they were. We, we, we ought not to do that. We need to see them as they were before then. How did they start? What were they all about? So we're going to look at what their concern was. It's important because you'll hear me say often, right, we're all recovering Pharisees, right, the proud Pharisaical heart. We all have that. But we need to really understand what they were all about. So number one, what was their concern? Number two, then we'll see their corruption. Jesus lays that out beautifully. And then their condemnation. Are you ready? We're going to head out into some deep water. Let our nets down for a catch. Number one, their concern. Verse 38. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat. Seems pretty innocent at this point. A lot of times it tells you on the front end they're trying to trick him and bring him. But this seems like just a meal. But we'll find out there was more. Jesus knew. So he went in and reclined at table. You remember how they ate back in the day? There were no chairs. They reclined the upper body close to the table, lower body away. And then we'll make a point here in a moment. They ate generally with their hands, not really utensils. So keep that in the back of your mind. Want to have the cultural context, right? So they're reclining. at. Remember the sinful woman that came in, anointed his feet? It was easy to do that because his feet were pointing away from the table. They were closer to the door, to the outer wall. So that's why it was easy for her to do that. So understanding context is helpful. Uh, but the Pharisees, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. Let's take a look at the Pharisees first, okay? If you want to look at when they were really amped up and they were really hitting it hard, about 2nd century B.C., all the way through the, the 70 A.D., but you could go back really to 500 B.C., but what, what, who were they? What were they all about? What in the world was going on? So here's the deal. They were, they were concerned with spiritual revival and the renewal of Israel. What had happened to the people of God? 
they were constantly under God's judgment. Why? They were constantly disobeying God. They were constantly turning away from God. So listen to this. So these guys, this is really a good thing. Imagine a group of people together today getting together in a church. A bunch of churches coming together and saying, you know what? There's some crazy stuff going on in this country. We want to get together and get on our knees. We want to start praying, and we want to start really demonstrating that the truths of the gospel. This really does change hearts, change lives, changes communities, changes a nation, changes the world. So we want to do that. So these guys got together with that goal. By the time that Jesus shows up, there's about 6,000 of them. They are totally committed to the word of God. So they couldn't have started out better. These, these would have been, in a modern-day term, these would have been the religious fundamentalists of their day. They were rock-solid, living for the Word of God. But something happened. Something went wrong. And that's what we want to take a look at. They, they, had, they had the law. They had the law. They had the, they had the law. But they also then had their own interpretation of the law. You might recognize the, the name Mishnah. They had the Mishnah where, where the, the, the lawyers, we'll see them in a moment, they would take the law and they would translate the law into what they would then call their traditions and their ceremonies. They would interpret the law as they saw it to be. So you can imagine at the beginning it, it was probably not that Big a deal at the beginning, but the further and further and further you get away from the actual original law and you keep adding on your tradition, what ends up happening? You worship me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. They no longer knew the law. They no longer knew the Lord. They no longer lived for the Lord. They were living for their traditions. So let me ask you a question. Jesus shows up in a culture where there's no utensils. Wouldn't you think it would be a pretty good idea for him to wash? Who here washes before they eat? Well, I hope so. I'm going to be watching you when you go out there. I'm going to make sure all of you go inside the bathroom and wash your little hands. So you say to yourself, what's up with this? So Jesus is teaching us a lesson, right? It's an acted out parable. You have these, this was a ceremony. This was ceremonial washing. This wasn't just washing your hands to sit down and eat because they're generally eating with their hands. He's making a point. You understand? That's why you have to get into the context. What do we say about Scripture? Don't take a piece of Scripture out of, out of, out of its passage, look at it, make a decision on what it means, and then put it back. Don't do that. Take a Scripture out and look at it, but put it back in and then interpret it what? In light of the passage, in light of the chapter, in light of the book, in light of all of Scripture. Well, you take it out of context. Then it becomes a pretext. It's not helpful. So Jesus is teaching us a message here. He says, I, I, in his mind, he says, I'm not going to wash. Why? He's got a message. Watch the message. They were constantly praying benedictions over themselves and over God's people. They were always commending themselves for who they were and what they did. I want you to notice this. and I want you to see if there's anything that's seemingly out of order in this benediction. This is a common benediction that the religious leaders would say. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. That's a great start, isn't it? Who has sanctified us with thy commandments and has commanded us concerning the washing of our hands. You know, I searched the scriptures. I couldn't find that. There's no commandment for that. They've, they've twisted. They've twisted. 
They've twisted. And this, this was the whole point. Do you know on the Sabbath? The Sabbath is a day of, right? Six days thou shalt work, one day thou shalt. That's God's perfect plan. Now, if you want to change that a little bit, five and two, that's okay. Five and two is a good plan. You know, don't flip it the other way. Six days thou shalt rest and one day work. Don't do that. That's not a good plan. God had a good plan. So now, so now what happened on the Sabbath and the day of rest? They had what, what was called in, in, in the mission of 39 separate categories of work. And in those categories, there was a multiplicity of, 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 of subcategories, some things you couldn't do. It was so burdensome, you never had any idea if you were ever fulfilling what, what they were, ended up believing was the law. And it wasn't the law. Law said rest. Rest from your work. The general category of work. And they just made it unbearable. They made it so there was no... What, 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 should be, what should be in the heart of everyone who comes to faith? The joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord. There's no joy when you're burdened like that. So Jesus says, I've got I to gotta show you guys something. I'm not going to wash for a reason. I'm not going to give in to your ceremonies. I'm not going to do it. So they started well. So they had a great concern for the nation, for God. They wanted God to be to be praised. But now they're sitting in front of God and they reject him. Okay? So here's their corruption. You ready? We're just going to hit the categories. These are their corruptions. 42 to 44. Woe to you, Pharisees. You give God a tenth of your mint and every herb, but neglect justice and love. You should have done the latter without neglecting the former. Notice that last line. Notice you should have done the latter. You know, people have asked me, Here's one I learned from Dr. Ron. This was a question that, it's not an uncommon question. I, I understand the Old Testament. I understand supporting the, 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 the Levites and the temple. But I don't see anywhere in the New Testament where it says that we're to carry on that obligation to give God. Well, first of all, who owns it all? Right? God. But I, this one was pointed out by Dr. Ron. So you read the passage, and what does is, what is Jesus confirm in the passage? The tithe. He said you should do that. You absolutely should do that. that. That's a given. But, see, see, the tithe now would be what? That would be the first table of the law. That would be vertical. That would be their relationship, their love for God. But what did they neglect? The second table of the law, the horizontal. The love of neighbor. They had no love of the neighbor. So mercy and justice was as far for them as the east was from the west. They took care of God. I remember Dr. Sproul saying one day in class, he was very big on this. He said, you know, if there was a sprig of green mint come out of a, a stone portion of the wall, they would pull that out immediately and bring their portion to the temple. They were scrupulous in, in making sure God got his share. And the first fruits, they were good. And that's normative throughout the church. That's a given. But Jesus said, you don't care for people. You have no compassion and love. You don't care about justice. You give these people these unimaginable burdens. So Jesus is on them. So notice what they do. They give their herbs, not their hearts. That's a bad, that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. Do you know that there are some people in the church, listen, listen. Some people in the church are afraid not to tithe. Does God want that? No. Afraid to go out in a thunderstorm if they haven't tithed. Don't do that. Some people squeeze the quarter so tight the eagle screams. Ah! Ah! Then there's people who give them with both hands. 
The right hand never knows what the left hand's doing. What's the issue? It's the heart. Every single issue is a heart issue, right? Right? Money's never about money. Right? Right? Immorality's never about immorality. Sex's never about sex. Anger's never about anger. Never about any of those things. What's it about? Heart. It's always a heart issue. It's the whole point. That's what Jesus is trying to get him to. Your heart doesn't beat for the right stuff. Your heart is beating for stuff that it should beat for that. But not neglecting your neighbor. They, here's what they felt. If I'm given to the church, I'm given to the temple, that's covering my neighbor. They don't need my justice and my mercy and my compassion. What a horrible way to live. That's not uncommon. So Jesus said, no, no, no. All right, let's keep going. They did not have what we talk about on Wednesday night now. They did not have a cross-shaped life. They were focused vertically, but they weren't horizontally. We have to have both. We cannot just have one. God says, what are the two great commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as your... 43, woe to you Pharisees. You love the most important seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace. So what they love? Praise, position, and prestige. That's what they loved. They loved that. You know how it was set up in the synagogues? The front, you know what we'd have to do if we set it up like that? Like back in the ancient days, you'd have to bring the first two pews to the front and turn them around so that they face you. So these guys would be sitting up in the front facing you. So why? You could see them. They wanted to be seen, the chief seats. Then they were the first to greet the itinerant rabbi who would come in and do the preaching and the teaching. These, what did Jesus say about them? You've received your reward in full. You have no reward waiting for you. You're not serving God. You're serving yourself. What did they say at one point in Jesus' ministry when people were flocking to him? Thousands upon thousands. How many did he feed in the feeding of the 5,000? We don't know. But scholars estimate 15 to 20,000. Thousands upon thousands were going to him. And what did they say? If we don't get this stopped, everyone in Israel will be with him. They didn't care about the Prince of Peace. They cared about their power and their prestige and their position. They wanted the chief seats. That's all they cared about. Jesus said no. Woe, now he goes one more time. Woe to you like you are like. Now, you have to understand context on this one, so we'll give it to you briefly. Unmarked graves, which men walk over without ever knowing it. Remember how you, remember the term whitewashed tombs? Do you know why? So that people could identify them. You wouldn't get anywhere near them. If you touched a dead body or anything that touched a dead body or anything that touched a dead body, that touched a dead body, that touched a dead body, you were defiled. Why was that a bad thing? Because you were then, you, you were then cut off from religious worship for seven days. You had to, you had to then be, be undefiled. You had to be cleansed. And, and why would that be a bad thing? The whole life in Israel was, was centered around what? The temple. The tabernacle when they were on the move in the Old Testament and the te- temple when the temple was constructed. It was religious life. That was their life. That's not the way it is today. I can imagine just telling the kids as they were growing up, hey, listen, we'll give you the week off. Don't have to show up. At ch- oh, thank you, Jesus. Stay home today. They, they didn't want to stay home. So they didn't want to touch a thing. They wouldn't get anywhere near anything that would defile them. They felt that they were defiled by a sinful woman. They'd walk across the other side of the street. Why? They needed to be in corporate worship. We could use a little of that kind of heart. But now, what's the deeper message? Oh, you need to see what Jesus just said to them without saying it. But he did say it. Ready? Numbers 19, 16. Anyone who touches a grave will be unclean for seven days. What were the religious leaders? Listen to me. What is any religious leader responsible for doing? Pastor, preacher, minister, evangelist, rabbi. What are they responsible to, to deliver the people? 
to, to God, deliver them from their sin and slavery to Satan and, and, and bondage. That's, their, that's the call. It's your job. That's why you're out in front of people. That's why you're ministering to people. That's why you study. That's why you stay on your knees and you pray. And you ask God to speak through you and to work through you to deliver those that you minister to. So what did Jesus just say to them? <laughs> Watch this. Don't miss it. Instead of delivering the people from, your, from, from their sin, you're defiling them with your own sin. Do you realize how scathing that was? You think you're the holiest people on the face of the earth and you think you're delivering people from sin? You defile them. Anytime they get near you, you defile them. You disgust me. You have no idea how far you are from me. That's what he just said to them. You are like, so to say you're like an unmarked grave, you are the most defiling thing on the face of the earth. That's what you are. Man, that's, that's serious stuff. So now, now, what happens? There's these different groups, right? And we're not 100% sure who belonged to, to which group. But the two main, you had your Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? You remember that? We've unpacked this before. And what was the main difference between the Pharisee and the Sadducee? The Pharisee looked up and believed in what? The afterlife and the resurrection. The Sadducee did not. There was no afterlife. But you had these, these lawyers. You had these scribes. And we're not really sure which group they all belonged to. And sometimes they had their own separate group. But the Pharisees are being hammered in this lunch meeting. And now the lawyers who are sitting there are beginning to be troubled. So in verse 45, the lawyers say this, Teacher, you, you insult us when you say this. So Jesus, being politically correct, then says in verse 46, he says, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. Let's get back to the meal. All is well. Peace, peace, where there is no peace. No. Verse 46, what does Jesus say? What? Well, I, I offend you? Oh, you, you, let me, let, I, I'm not even warmed up. I, I just hammered them. Now you say, I have, woe to you, experts in the law. You load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. You think that I'm, I'm insulting. I'm not even warm. You have no idea what's coming next. What, 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 how are they living? These are the lawyers. So these are the interpreters of the law. Tradition. Their tradition has done what? It's trumped God's truth. They don't know God's truth. They know their tradition. So the tradition is burdening everyone around them. You can't carry those burdens. There are too many. There's too many laws. There's too many things. God never commanded all that. God, God came to set you free, not bind you up. I know some people who go to church, they feel more guilty when they leave than when they came in. That ought not to be the case. You should, you should not feel that way. You come so that this, you get yourself freed from this. Jesus has saved you. He saved you then. He's saving you every day. It's a great line. I've said it to you many times before. When I first heard it from Dr. Kenny, I didn't understand it. God God saved you then as he's saving you now. God needs to save Tommy Boland from from Tommy Boland every moment of every day. It never goes away. Until when? Until I'm gone. We need a Savior every moment of every day. Because we have this heart that beats just like the Pharisee's heart was beating. It beats for itself. It doesn't beat for the Savior. We want what we want, when we want it, how we want it. And we don't care sometimes who gets hurt along the way. That's the brokenness of the human heart. Jesus says, you guys don't even understand what's going on here. 
You can't even see who's sitting in front of you. Three years of miracles and teachings. and You're missing it. And I'm here. So he goes now further. Watch this. Woe to you. You build tombs. Oh, man. For the prophets, your forefathers. So their forefathers killed the prophets, right? Which prophets in the Old Testament were killed? We don't have to go by name, but which category? I can tell you the category of prophets that were not killed. The ones that said peace, peace when there was no peace. They were loved. They were adored. Because they didn't speak the truth. But those who spoke the truth, what did they do to them? Snuffed them out. Had no interest in those guys. So he says, now your fathers, your forefathers killed them and you're building tombs. On the surface, that seems like a good thing. But he says, uh-oh, you approve of what your forefathers did in killing the prophets. He knows the heart. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, now don't miss this. I'm going to give you a little extra insight here. I will send them prophets and apostles. Some they will kill and others they will persecute. You know what they're thinking right now? They're sitting at this lunch meeting. And they're all thinking, because these are experts in the law. They had much of it memorized. So they're thinking, that, okay, where is that? Is that in Isaiah? Is that in Malachi? Is that, I don't remember where that is. Where the, look, notice, stay with me. Don't miss this, please. This is really, really important. Because of this, God in his, oh God, God in his wisdom said. When did God say that? Right then. God didn't say it in the past. You can't find that in the scripture. Who was speaking to them? God. That's what he just said. I'm God. Here's what I'm saying to you. And you're missing it. This is, this is powerful. Because they're, they're racking their brains right now. Where is that? It's nowhere. God just spoke. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was. People say to me all the time, well, I don't see anywhere where Jesus said that he was God. Okay, if you're reading the hard English, the, the hard Greek, and, the, and, and, and you're looking, did Jesus say, I am God? Well, those words in that word order, and that, no, he didn't say that. But there isn't a place in Scripture where he didn't say he was not God. He said it in every other way. He says it here. Before Abraham was I. So you have these literalists who say, well, I don't see where Jesus said he was God. I don't see where he didn't say it. He said it everywhere. So he claims to be God right here. They miss it. They're making, they're building tombs. Check this out. Tombs to honor the dead, but they despise the message. How does he know they despise the message? Because they despise his. They're not listening to him. And he is what? What did we just read a couple weeks ago? Whenever that was, Jonah was a prophet. He said, one greater than Jonah is here. The greatest prophet is here, and you're not listening to me. And you're building tombs for the prophets, and you don't listen to their message. It's me. I'm the messenger and the message. Blind guys. Blind guides. And then finally, one more hammer. Woe to you for taking away. Oh. What's the key of knowledge? What's the key? The word of God. Woe to you for taking away the key to knowledge. You have entered, you have not entered, and have hindered others for entry. So they won't go in. They're blocking the door, and they won't let anybody in. So... The word of God is the key, right? Truth. Truth is truth, right? Is there any new truth? No. Truth is what? Old. Say old. And all truth is God's 
truth, right? Truth is old. So sometimes I have to speak when I'm speaking to unbelieving skeptics and remind them of this. I said, wouldn't you be skeptical if a friend came to your house over the weekend and handed you a stack of flyers and said, we're opening a brand new business right down the street from you and you've got to come to the open house. It's a brand new factory we just put together for manufacturing antiques. You've got to come and see it. We've got the greatest antiques you've ever seen. And you think to yourself, hold on a minute. Antiques are old. You don't manufacture antiques. I'm not coming. I'm not coming. Truth is old. There's no new truth. And all truth is God's truth. Schaefer would say true truth, if you have to define it even more specifically. You have the key to the truth. And you won't use it, nor will you allow anyone else to use it. Matthew 15, 6. You nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Do you know, you ever heard this phrase in the church? That's the way we've always done it. You ever heard the phrase, well, we've never done it that way here. There's nothing wrong with phrases like that at times, but that sometimes can keep you locked into what? Tradition. There's a lot of tradition that's good. So let's, let's be careful. There's a lot of good tradition, right? A lot of good tradition in your family, in your homes. A lot of good tradition in the church. But traditionalism, when you add that ISM on the end, it's really a bad thing. Because then tradition trumps everything else. And that's not a good thing. That's really not. So Jesus said, your tradition has just nullified the word of God. You've nullified the truth. So how do, we, how do we get to the condemnation? Watch this. This one is really easy to miss, and I'm going to make a brief point just to show you how profound the Lord Jesus is and what he says, and it's so easy to miss. So just stay with me on this, and then we close, and we'll sing together, and then we will eat. 50 and 51, okay? Therefore, this generation will be held. This is under the condemnation. They'll be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that have been shed. Now listen to these words. Since the beginning of the world, what's that? That's in the beginning God, right? So you've got to go back to Genesis. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Okay, so pause for a moment. When you come to Scripture, this is one of the great things that I did learn in the seminary through so many great professors. You have to come and ask some really important questions. What does that mean? I don't understand that. Jesus is talking about from the beginning. We go back to the passage, if, if the Lord leaves me alive long enough, we might get to chapter 24 in Luke, and we'll get to the, the talk that Jesus had on the road to Emmaus. And remember when he said to those guys who were down and de- dejected and, and their hope had died on the cross? And what does he say? Oh, foolish and slow of heart, did you not know? And what does he say about the Scriptures? What order does he put it in? The law the prophets, and the writings. Now stay with me. This is important. So that you, can see, you couldn't make any of this up. You want to see how this beautifully fits together. Where does Abel fit? He fits in Genesis. Where does Zechariah fit? Second Chronicles. And you go, oh, that doesn't make sense. That's in the beginning of my book. That's in the beginning of your English Bible. Does anybody here have a Hebrew Bible? That's the last book. And it's not first and second. It's just Chronicles. It's the last book. It's only 24. That's the last book in the Hebrew Bible. So Zechariah becomes what? The last Old Testament martyr. Do you see what Jesus just said? 
See, if you just look at it from the English translation, you go, ah, that doesn't make any sense to me, but that's a good statement. No, 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 it's not a good statement. It's the Word of God. And he's identified, what, what Bible did they have back then? They only had the Hebrew Bible. So he's telling you from the beginning to the end of the Hebrew Bible, the Bible that you have in your hands, not the one that you're holding today. Same books. We all have the same books. We have it in 39. They have it in 24. Canon is the same. But Second Chronicles, why is that important for us to understand? Listen to this. Listen to this very... So put Chronicles together, one and two. Don't separate them. Just make big, one big scroll, right? Just, just, but if you have to put on two scrolls, just leave it as one book. How does Chronicles open? Last book of the Old Testament, how does it open? With a genealogy. Nod your heads. What's the first book in the New Testament? Say the name. Matthew. How does that open? See, you got it all figured out. See that? Scholars you are, all of you. The Old Testament ends with the, ends with the genealogy and opens. What's the first book? What's the first book in the prophets? And then you have the writings in the prophets. You have, you, have, you have Joshua and you have the Psalms. What do they point to? They both point back immediately at the opening of the two books. They point back where? To the law. The two books that end... The prophets and the writings are what? Malachi, right, prophet, and the closing of the canon, Second Chronicles. What do they point forward to? The fulfillment of the law, the Lord Jesus. Do you see how beautifully all this fits together? He's making a profound statement that's easy to miss if we don't take our time to understand what's really in that passage. So when you hear him say this from the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, he's taught, what has he just said? The entire Old Testament history, I am the fulfillment of it. And the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament history, you now reject. Don't miss this. This is so powerful. Luke eleven fifty three 53 to 54, and then we're, we're done. Here we are, we're close. When Jesus left, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. I wanted to find a really good understanding of this, which had to go beyond my own. So I went to the Expositor's Greek Testament. And the, here's, the, here's what the Expositor's Greek Testament says. This is important. This is really deep. So I, 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 I worked through this throughout the week. Listen to what they were doing. Here's the way the scholars put it. To seek offhand ill-considered answers to crafty questions. Do you realize how powerful that... What are they trying to do? They're trying to catch Jesus. So how do they approach Jesus? With one question after another question after another question. You ever give an answer to a question and after you've given it, you went, oh, why did I open my mouth? Couldn't I have just waited a few minutes longer? Why did I click send? Oh, how do I unsend? How do I unsend? You can't unsend. You can unfriend, but you can't unsend. Oh, it's a mess. So what does Jesus do? Listen to me. Don't miss this. What does Jesus do? How does he answer? How does he answer? How does he answer almost all the time? How does he answer? He never answers a question with an answer. He answers with a question. That's what we have to learn to do when we're dealing with unbelieving skeptics today. We have to be able to speak to them this way. It allows us to change the entry point into the conversation. I'm going to show you something in just a moment. But let me give you two great questions in Scripture. Jesus will throw the, the, the large net, right, the big casting net, and then he's going to take a rod and reel, if you will, just a line. Watch what he does. Ready? Show him. What, who do the crowds say that I am? That's a question that you can ask us. So take an unbelieving skeptic. 
You're not asking them personally. You're not getting inside of the heart yet. So you're having just a conversation. You say, okay, what does the world say about this guy? Who do the crowd say? They say who this Jesus is. And then you opened up a conversation. Instead of you jumping right in and say, listen, you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. Boom, door gets closed, and you're done. You never get another invite back. So now you're talking to them a little bit, and you say, well, who do the crowd say? And they, you have a dialogue. Then what happens? Then you can narrow the field of vision. Now you can cast that, that, that line out, and then you can get back to a heart issue and say, okay, but what about you? See, Jesus is teaching us. The way that Jesus taught, he's teaching us to teach like that, to, to, to minister like that, to evangelize like that. If Jesus is the greatest prophet, priest, and, and, and king, he's also the greatest evangelist, right? So he's teaching us how to evangelize. I'm going to give you a, a real scenario that happens. It happens all the time to me. And this is what we're teaching on Wednesday night. But I'm going to give you a real-life scenario. Ready for this? Okay, let's go. Run it. Skeptic asks an opening question. This is, this is probably, listen to me. If you, if you share the gospel, you have to nod your head. This is, your, this is the number one objection. In a pluralistic society, we, we, listen, plur, nothing wrong with, with being pluralistic, right? It's a good thing. Religious freedom, liberty of religion, right? That's all a good thing. Pluralism is a bad thing. What pluralism does is it raises all religious claims to the same level and says that they're all equally valid, they're all equally true. That's where the problem is. But you live in a society, so you take our college students, and you send your college student off, and you say, listen, we want you to go evangelize on the campus. And now your college student is sitting at a secular university next to a Hindu, a Buddhist, a secular humanist, and a Jew. And they're all in the same organizations together, and they're, 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 they're going out together on the weekends, and they're going, man, these are really cool people. Man, and I'm supposed to tell them that what they believe is wrong, and I'm supposed to evangelize them? These people I've met here are nicer than most of the people I know back in my church. Some of them are so angry and just mean. I'm glad I got away. I can't do it, Dad. 70%, listen, 70% of the Christian kids that leave the church and go to the secular university come out of the church. This is why. We have not trained them. So the skeptic puts me on the horns of a dilemma they believe. Oh, pastor, you say Jesus is the only way. Yes, I do. And are you telling me that all the followers of other religions are going to hell? What the simple answer would be, you bet your bottom dollar. (laughs) Door slammed, meal's over. Last time I get a chance to speak. What's my response? Do you believe in hell? We've just, you have no, you got to try it once. It's a show stop. Oh. And generally, if they're intellectuals, which most of them think they are, are you out of your mind? Of course I don't. And what is my response? <laughs> and why do you ask? <laughs> now, it sounds funny. It sounds funny. But it opens up what? A dialogue. Now, we can, now, if I'd have said yes, they're on the way to hell. It's true. If you're outside of Christ. But why do we have to say it that way? So now we have a dialogue. Now, now, the, now, now the, other, the, other, the other guy that says, well, of course I believe in hell. So then what's the reframe for that? There's a dozen of them. But what's a real good one? Okay, who decides who goes? Hmm. And then you can just throw a name if you'd like, a common name that all... Apologist, would you, is Hitler going? Well, of course. So who decides? You understand what the whole goal is? What is Jesus teaching us? 
if you can't keep the dialogue going, you can tell them they're sinners in need of a Savior, and you've spoken the truth in love. And God uses anything. And God's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We don't have to prove God. But we live in a different world today. And if we want to connect with this world, we have to begin to understand how to contextualize the way that we deliver an unchanging message. Okay? Close with this. Here's the questions. Why did Jesus not wash his hands before eating? Why did Jesus let a sinful woman touch him? Why did Jesus and his disciples pick grain on the Sabbath? And why in the world would Jesus heal on the Sabbath, and in particular in the synagogues? Why? Because tradition is never, ever to trump truth. That's why. He was making a point. You are so far away from me, you can't even see me, and I'm right in front of you. You have no interest in finding a Savior because you've saved yourselves. Is that the condition of your heart today? You came in here, you'd heard about Jesus before, you'd heard his name, you've heard him preached, but you never surrendered control to him. You didn't quite get it. You got it today. The gospel is clear. Christ has come to set the captives free and we are all bound to our nature and our nature is corrupted. We are dead in trespass and sins and the only way forward is by faith in Christ, trusting in Christ alone. So Jesus, with outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands, says this to you, come. Will you come today? All who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Will you come to Christ by grace through faith? Will you? Let me make this perfectly clear. Today, right now, is a moment of salvation. I'll, by way of the internet, this is a moment of salvation. This afternoon, it may be too late. The Bible makes it crystal clear. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. There's no second chance. Come to Christ. Jesus has come. Come by grace through faith, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, if there's anyone who's never prayed, never, ever prayed, to receive Jesus. Let's pray together right now. Every believer in here, just in your heart, pray these words with me. If you've never prayed, pray them. You're not saved by a prayer, but just pray these words. Sense the moving of the Spirit in your heart. You sense your heart moving. You sense it beating for something different right now. Just pray these words. Oh God, I heard the gospel today. I heard the truth. I thought I heard it before, but today I really heard it. Something, something's different today. God, I sense that you're moving in my heart. I sense that you're moving in my life. God, I cry out to you right now. Give me the gift of repentance and faith. Raise me from death to life. I cannot save myself. I've tried with my good works. I've tried with my religiosity. I've tried with showing up to church and giving my time, my talent, and my treasure. I cannot save myself. Oh, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's all. It's that simple. Transferring your trust from yourself to Jesus, repenting of your sins. Father, then we'd ask that you would give them the confident assurance that nothing will ever separate them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the power of God unto salvation. And for the rest of us, help us to keep on keeping on, doing what you've called us to do, knowing we do it imperfectly but yet desiring to do it in a way that is honoring and pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.